Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the, the buzz, the loudness, the loud interaction. It's a sign of life. It's a sign of uh, people loving on people, interacting with people, caring about people, just conversing with people. We thank you that you are a God that is so gracious to give us a community that, that wants to love as you call us to love because you loved us first. Father, we pray that you, know, you would guide us to the power of your spirit this morning and that you would lead us in all understanding for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay. I, I mentioned it last week. This is kind of the format I'm going to go with. If any of you are like me or my wife, we like to know ahead of time what the questions are so that we can kind of look for answers so we can inter, interact as, um, with folks. Um, and we, my wife and I are both slow processors, two in the same house. It can cause some challenges sometimes. Um, so you can uh, look ahead on there. You can see some. there's two underlined areas on the first page. And let's see, I don't think, uh, second page, that, that big one's probably just going to be a comment. There's another line on that second page. Um, like last week, we didn't get a chance to get it to all of them. We kind of do a little time management. And if you guys are heavy on the interaction up front, then that's great. We just don't interact as much on some of the other questions. You can take it home and, and process some of those. Um, it's just neat. I never want to stop the, you know, where, where we just have to be so rigid we can't go to the interaction. Let's jump in and dive in. And if, if we've got more in one area to talk about it, let's take advantage of it. All right. The study is, do you believe 12 historic doctrines uh, to change your everyday life by Paul Tripp? I mentioned, uh, actually, um, last week was the first time we're dealing with the doctrine of God. Everything works in couplets or twos. We take on a doctrine the first week, he'll give a little bit of application, and then the second week he's going to really load up on application on the same doctrine. So we're on week two, so you see the, what's next to it. It says the doctrine of God, God in everyday life. And this is our fourth class. Um, we're going to uh, be taking a break, a four-week break on this study in June, and Paul is going to lead us, start us off in a... Uh, Understanding or Redeeming Money by Paul Tripp. Uh, if you couldn't tell, uh, we love Paul Tripp. Uh, he gives so much good insight from a pastoral uh, perspective. So we'll go into four weeks of redeeming money. What does it look like from a, a heart position, be, uh, being stewards, and, and what, is, what does God call of, of us? And then we'll, we'll come back. And then we might, uh, we'll probably do more of this in August, meaning the redeeming money, and then we'll come back. And we'll just keep... Well, that way we're not all overwhelmed with the same talk for, for too long. So... Um, this will be the last week we'll teach on this uh, for four weeks, and then Paul will jump in, and then we'll be back on again the following month. All right, so with that in mind, we, um, we're going to start with the first uh, subtopic there, responding to God's existence. But you need to know what I do when I uh, take these studies is I synthesize, or I, I take the, the whole study, and I break down and say, now nah, we, we don't have time to talk about this or with that, but all of this is Paul Tripp. None of it's Nick. Um, so... I need to give you a little bit of lead on. He's going to get, uh, he, what you didn't get in this, and what we're going to read is the fact that he's talking about how people respond to God's existence. And he's classifying people, he's giving categories. And his first category is those who deny God's existence. And then the second category is those who know there's a God, but they're not interested in knowing any more about that God. They just like, you know, God's just kind of fuzzy. He's an entity out there. Yeah, I know there's a God. I hope when, I, when life is over that he says I'm, I'm good and we're good and we can just keep going together my way. It doesn't work that way. Um, now, Paul Tripp is going to jump in there, and he's going to talk about those that know God, love God, but dot, dot, dot. And everyone in this room is pretty much there as far as, we love God, but there's some baggage we bring into our, our relationship. So with that, 
Um, we got a, ba a baby on the run. Uh, we got a runner. Okay, so uh, go ahead and uh, uh, Mark, if you want to go ahead and start us off there with the reading. There is a final category. Responding to God's existence? Yeah. Yep. Okay. There is a final category of response to the existence of God. I confess that this category includes me and, I would think, everyone reading this book. There is nothing more important, more central, more heart-engaging, and more formative than my belief in and my relationship with my Savior and Lord. It is not only the center of my worldview, but He is the source of all my hope in this life and in the life to come. If you would watch my video, you would see how my belief in and relationship with God motivates and directs me every day. I love him with all my heart, and everything I do is shaped by the worship of him, but not always. Mm. I, I think we all live in that, but not always. <laughs> okay. That, but not always, depicts a category that somehow, some way, as long as sin still lives inside of us, every true believer fits into. It is the category of practical atheism. No, I'm not talking about a philosophical, theological rejection of the existence of God. What I'm pointing to here are those moments when we think, desire, speak, or act as if God doesn't exist. Perhaps it's a moment when we cheat on an exam or give way to gossip. Maybe it's a moment when we give way to lust or make ourselves the center of attention by taking too much credit. Maybe it's buying something that we do not need, and because we have, we then have nothing left to contribute to the work of God's kingdom. Maybe it's being nasty to your wife or selfishly demanding with your husband. Perhaps it's a moment when you decide the acceptance of your friends is more important than obeying your parents. Maybe it's permitting angry outbursts against the children you are called to patiently and faithfully nurture. Or it could be a moment of road rage or anger with a fellow worker. Perhaps it's a circumstance where you functionally worship a created thing more than you do the creator. You may not have any inconsistencies in your theology of God, yet we all have functional inconsistencies in the way we live out that theology, in the places, situations, and relationships of our daily lives. We all need to confess these, uh, this struggle and to cry out for protecting, rescuing, and enabling grace so that uh, we who profess to uh, have given our lives over to belief in existence, glory, power, and the grace of God of the Bible who would have fewer and fewer moments in our lives where we insert ourselves in the center and act as if he doesn't exist. Hmm. It is also important that we have hearts ready to confess our moments of practical atheism as God and his convicting grace reveals them to us. Where are you susceptible to act, reacting, or response, responding as if God didn't exist? So let's take that as a question, and I'm not looking for you to confess to the whole room your, your, your deepest of sins. What I'm getting at is, is there an area where you look back and you go, man, this really does fit practical atheism. Um, where I just kind of disconnect and God doesn't exist in this moment and I have to deal with this situation alone. Maybe it's that kind of a thing. Does anyone have something of that nature? And why you guys are, are processing and wondering how safe it is to say what and what should I say and all that. We, we, maybe we won't go on this one. That's okay. I will share with you that I am most prone to practical atheism 
when I am overwhelmed with whatever I'm dealing with. If I'm, if I'm preaching and it's later in the week and I see things developing and I, my sermon isn't where it needs to be, and, I, and you cannot, I found out, it is impossible to produce a sermon. I have pastoral friends that produce sermons. They start on Friday. I do not know how you can start on Friday because you, you meditated on it all week long and God's giving you an idea of, of oh, oh, yeah, oh, 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 yeah. And so it's, it's not when you're sitting in front of the computer and your studies that you think of things. It's when you're just doing life. But I am prone in those times of being overwhelmed to, to implement my practical atheism. We're all sudden, and it's, well, you'll start to see it, the worry, the stress, the, the grumbling. Uh, all sudden things start to develop. And so I become a practical atheist. And I love that this, again, is a, one of the things that this author, Paul Tripp, does really well with is it makes you go, ooh, that hurts. When I, I thought it was just maybe I wasn't as spiritual at this time of the week. And really, I'm demonstrating practical atheism. So, although I'm a Christian and a, a pastor, so anybody on that? Yeah, I was going to say when uh, when a PJ was reading that list, there's about a half a dozen. I'm shaking my head. <laughs> That's me. Okay, yeah. and it could be any day or at uh, the same day. You know mm-hmm. that. Oh, yeah. And that's that's a marvelous thing about grace that you know even though you feel like you're reacting to, uh, to one of these or as this that uh, God just forgives you you know He's I that's I'm learning that a lot now that's good that's really I good. got a lot of work to do Dennis so I don't know how people don't see my bright orange car when I'm driving down the road <laughs> but when people pull out in front of me or cut me off it's like what the crap are you doing right so that's my big one okay or one of my big ones so it's it's it, it, I'm, I'm going to contextualize it playfully because a friend helped me this way so it's your road and everyone should drive the, exactly the way you need them to drive it's uh, not like my car is camouflaged. <laughs> it's orange, for crying out loud. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, I appreciate the honesty there. All right, let's continue on. <laughs> Paul, if you want to uh, take us into the next area. Uh, nothing is more humbling than acknowledging God's existence. The first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God put us in our place. We didn't start things. We don't control them. The world doesn't function according to our plans. We don't know what's coming next, and we wouldn't know who we are and what we're supposed to be doing if it were not for the Creator. We will never be in the center of it all, and it is the height of spiritual decision to act as if we are. Delusion. There you go. <laughs> Every part of our creaturehood is defined by limits. We have limits of wisdom and understanding, Mm. limits of strength and ability, and physical and spiritual limits of every kind. Indeed. Let's continue on. Next person. Only God is above all and knows all. Only God plans and controls everything. Only God has no limits to his wisdom, righteousness, and strength. Only God is able to assure us that his will is always done. Only God has the right and understanding to set the rules by which his creatures will live. Though made in his image, we are small, weak, and needy. So we all need good biblical and God-centered theology to humble us, to put us in our place. Bow before the throne of Almighty God and allow yourself to be in the heart-trembling awe of his glory. 
Pride crumbles before the throne of the Almighty God. See Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. We're going to talk about the, the nine truths most, uh, uh, that he's going to list about God and, uh, um, and you and me as well. So <clears throat> whoever's reading, up, reading next, as you're reading them, see which one kind of uh, impacts you. I was kind of went, ah, that's interesting. So again, uh, whoever's next, take on those nine areas. Which one of the following nine truths most connects with you and why? And one, the holiness of God exposes how unholy we are. Two, the almighty power of God shines a light on our weaknesses. Three, the sovereignty of God shows how little control we actually have. Four, the omniscience of God causes us to face the limits of our knowledge and understanding. Five, the love of God exposes how unloving we can be. Six, the faithfulness of God confronts our wandering hearts. Seven, the grace of God reveals how critical and unforgiving we often are. Eight, the patience of God confronts our irritability and impatience. Nine, the righteousness of God exposes our sin. Okay, as you heard those read, any of those impact you like, oh, yeah, I've lived through that experience. Let's see, we got Cindy over here. Uh, and we got, we'll start off with Paul, and then we'll make it over to Cindy. Well, I've got a point at both eight and nine that the more studying I do of God's word, the worse center I become. That's where Paul is. So many people have go, uh, I've had people come up to me and go, how do we, you realize that in this service, we'll say, I am the, we'll read from Timothy, I am the foremost or the chief of sinners. Mm-hmm. And w- what, sometimes people will come up and say, and they'll go, but I don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Well, the more you study it, you become like Paul in chapter 7. I, I well, oh, wretched man that I am. You realize it's not, it's not that, I'll put it this way. I'll just say it in the positive. God keeps getting so much bigger that all my sins become much, so much more obvious. And I, I am sinning less, but I'm finding out more ways that I'm sinning, so it feels like I'm sinning more as I grow in my maturity. So does that help kind of explain where you are? Exactly. And, and we're talking about Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. Because you look at that and you just kind of, you know, shrink away. <laughs> I'm going to have no comment here because if Paul feels like that, where am I or where should I be as far as being humbled by that truth? That's great. I appreciate it. Uh, Cindy over here. Cindy Sanchez. And I didn't know if someone else had something up. So as I'm doing the Bible in a year and going through what is really difficult in the Old Testament, the thing that right now, all of, those, all of these could apply at some point, but right now what I'm noticing the most is number four as God is telling the Israelites to go wipe out this nation and mm. kill every woman and child. And, mm. and there's that sense in me that goes, why every woman and child? You know, mm. there probably are children that didn't know what their, their parents were, that they were worshiping Baal and, and that decision. And then there's this check that says, wait a second. Who are you mm. to tell God what is right and what is just? And so it brings me back to those characteristics of God, that he's totally holy, totally just. Amen. And I need to check my 
questioning in that sense of whether that was right or wrong. And it just, again, brings me back to the characteristics of that's that. That's great. That's a great example. We got PJ up here. Oh, right, good. All right, Kaylin, have at it. So for me, it would be number five. The love of God exposes how unloving we can be. Mm. That one really hits home because, like, if I'm ever in a fight with my parents or, like, impatient with someone mm. or perhaps a little bit too critical, I suddenly start to realize, wait a minute, I'm not loving this person as God has loved me. Mm. And it just crushes me. It hurts so much to realize that... God has been so loving towards me and God is so loving towards the other people that I'm not loving in the moment. Mm. And it hurts because I realize how far I am from the righteous standard that I seek. It's a good humbling that we, we receive when we realize who God is and are falling short of imaging him. Thank you, Kaylin. Yeah, I, I, um, I definitely resonate with point six, the faithfulness of God confronts our wandering hearts, and I think it connects really well with um, the practical atheism point. Um, I immediately think of, of the book of Jeremiah as a whole and much of the prophets, but Jeremiah 3.6 uh, says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one? Israel, how she went up on every high hill and every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done this all, uh, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all, all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with the, her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And then I just think of phrases of like, well, repeatedly in the Psalms we hear, his steadfast love endures forever. And the um, accusations that the prophets are calling at Israel and Judah are absolutely applicable to my heart daily in mm. these acts of practical atheism. And so to think I'm being unfaithful to God more often than I'm being faithful to God in a day. And yet here, God is, his faithfulness is consistent to put up with me. Like in a normal relationship, I would say that person's crazy. You need to get away from that. Mm. Um, and so I think just the fact that we practice practical atheism daily um, and break the, the first two commandments consistently, uh, and yet God's faithfulness strikes me. Amen. His faithfulness and love is why we can come and repent and know he's going to love us. We run from, we don't want to deal with the shame of our sin. We are tempted to run away from God. And if we'll just focus on his faithfulness, he's there to receive us and accept our, our forgiveness of sin. Go ahead, James. It is important to understand what it means to believe in God. I wrote earlier that many people who say they believe in God don't believe in him in the biblical sense of what believe means. Hebrews 11.6 defines the two essential aspects of true faith. And without true faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he, he rewards those who seek him. Sorry about the staple there. Who's ever next up to read? 
First, faith submits to and agrees with God's revelation of his existence and character. Acts 17, 22 through 31 explains what it means to believe in God's existence. Paul is addressing Athean philosophers who think that God is unknowable. Paul's answer to this contention is to declare who God is as creator, sovereign, and savior. To believe that God exists means acknowledging and worshiping God as your creator, your sovereign, and your savior. I will unpack the implications of these faith commitments later, but I must say here that you cannot claim to believe in God unless you acknowledge these three aspects of his revelation of himself. Interesting, there's a qualifier in belief. In, in today's society, well, I said, the, <clears throat> I said the sinner's prayer, so I'm a believer. And he's saying, no, there's qualifications to being or falling underneath that uh, believer status. <clears throat> Let's continue on. But there is a second aspect of true biblical faith that the second half of the Hebrews passage captures, and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is never just a matter of what you do with your mind. Hmm. It is always a transaction of a willing and submissive heart that alters the way you approach every area of your life. The heart of faith really does believe that God's way is the right and best way. It believes that there is a blessing in following God no matter what the costs. Faith believes that obedience is its own reward because it shelters me from the bitter harvest of sin. Faith produces a need for God that means I really do pray without ceasing. So faith in God doesn't live where I lie where I live each day, if it doesn't alter the way that I live at my university dorm, my home, my job, my neighborhood, my church, the mall, or when I'm alone and no one sees, and the other locations of my life, then it is not the kind of faith in God that is described in his word. So it, it was that particular uh, statement, as I've underlined, was impactful uh, to me. Um, let me go to the top, right, well, about four or five lines up where it starts the underlining, and let me just read that first comma, up to the first comma. Faith believes that obedience is its own reward. I just want to leave it there rhetorically with you guys and, and challenge you to process that. That might be a nice conversation to have over uh, uh, your time with whoever is your closest one that you engage with, whether it's a, a meal or just a conversation um, wherever you uh, converse with that, that other believer that you, you talk about the deeper things. Faith believes that obedience is its own reward. Do I believe that? And can I demonstrate that by way of application in my life? Okay, let's continue on. We find comfort in the fact that God hates sin. What is your response when in your Bible reading you come across passages like the following? The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness, Proverbs 15.9. How do you respond to the many warnings of God's judgment against those who sin against him? What does it mean to you that God hates sin? I want to point out one beautiful comfort in what could seem to be terrifying to those who are willing to admit that they are less than righteous. There is a sweet, lasting, and hope-giving comfort in the fact that sin offends God all of the time and in every way. You would not want to live in a world where the one ruling the world had no hatred for sin. If God did not hate sin, we would have no hope of justice and mercy and no standard of right and wrong to guide and protect us. 
If God didn't hate sin, evil would reign unchallenged. It is God's hatred of sin that causes him to restrain evil at the personal and community levels. Without this restraint, it would not be safe to leave your house, to drive your car, to have relationships, or to do business. The fact that thievery and violence are not the constant experience of each of our daily lives is evidence that the one who sits on the throne of the universe hates sin. God's hatred of sin makes our lives livable. Can I jump in there real quick? Um, I had a, uh, a professor um, in my biblical uh, uh, counseling studies that pointed out, um, I'm to think of Robert Jones. He has a book on anger that's probably the book, best, in my opinion, the best book out there. Um, but he says God is, the, is uh, simultaneously the most loving God and the most hating God. If you understand his hate is a righteous hate, and he hates sin, and he brings wrath against sin. And if we did not have that, we would not have justice, and we would have chaos, and we would all always be miserable. So it's just it's when you think, wow, he could be the most loving being because as the creator and the one who hates more than any being that he created, but he always hates perfectly or justly. That doesn't mean we try and emulate his hate in other areas of our life and say, and what I mean by that, and say, see, I, I'm just hating on this person because they deserve this or that. And we've got to be careful about, do we hate sin? We've got to be very careful. We, we weaponize. That's why God says vengeance is mine. We weaponize very quickly the, 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 the things of God and the things that we hide behind and say it's okay to do this or that. We've got to be careful of that. that. But that truth really convicted me of God's hatred for sin. And it's, it's such a pure hatred for sin. It's such a righteous hatred. Okay, let's continue on. But there is more. It is God's hatred of sin that drove Jesus to the cross. On the cross, God's anger with sin intersected with his grace. In his hatred of sin, God was unwilling to leave his image bearers and his world in their sin-merit state. So in holy justice, he moved to the right to right the wrongs that sin had done. But instead of wholesale condemnation and judgment, he poured out his grace by sending his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If God did not hate sin, there would be no cross. And if there were no cross, there would be no forgiveness, no restored relationship with him, and no hope of transforming grace. If there is no transforming grace, there is no hope of personal heart and life change. All of the blessings of grace come to us because God hates sin and loves righteousness. Because he hates sin, he sent his son to take on our sin so that we could be called the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 hmm. That'll stop you dead in your tracks. Let's keep going. The hope of the final restoration of all things in our place in the new heavens and earth where righteousness will dwell forever is one of the most precious results of God's hatred of sin. Because God's hatred of sin is complete and unrelenting, he will not be satisfied until it is finally and completely eradicated in every way and in every place, along with all of the corollary damage. Because God hates sin, as his child, you will be welcome to the funeral of the sin and invited to live forever in a world unlike anything we have yet known 
or have the ability to conceive. That is, a world where sin is no more, since there is sweet comfort on knowing that God hates sin. Wouldn't it then be good for you, wherever you are, whatever your daily relationships and responsibilities are to hate sin too? What are some ways that a person can express hatred of sin? It's anybody, an, anybody want uh, to take a shot at that? What are some ways that one can, that a person can express hatred of sin? Confession. Confession. Great. Great. What is it? Repentance. Repentance. Good. A repentant heart. Confession. Willing. Go ahead. Another one. Striving for godly justice in the world. Okay. Striving for godly. Wonderful. Good. Striving for godly justice. So. A proactive uh, uh, perspective. Uh, uh, anybody else? Uh, Rob Roy? Some of the simple things that we overlook, like corporate worship. Yeah, let's get that on. We know you're going to go Some more of the than simple just a things words, that we <laughs> overlook, like, uh, like corporate worship, mm. right? So hating sin is to follow righteousness. To follow righteousness is to follow God's will. God's will is revealed. And we're to love them with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're to do it together. We're not to forsake the assembly of the saints. So we come together, and this is where the Lord has called us to be. This is where the Lord ministers to us ordinarily, but yet in a special way. Uh, and so we're going to sit under the preaching of the word. We're going to sit under the ministry of the Lord's Supper we're going to sing the word, we're going to hear the word, we're going to be fed the word today. And to do that and to want to come requires a hatred for sin, because to hate sin means you thirst for righteousness, and those who thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Interesting. So I'm, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, so when I choose to worship the pillow God, I am not hating sin. If I choose, now don't, don't, please don't hear this as, as legalistic, meaning that I, there's providential reasons that right, you can be held back from, you might be sick, or you might have a child sick, there's reasons for holding back. But when you come across a Christian that says that I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church, you can contextualize that. I'm a Christian based on what you're saying in this context, Rob Roy. I'm a Christian, but I don't hate sin in the sense of, being with those that have come to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, come wanting to be fed, that all God does, and feeding us spiritually on the Lord's day. Um, I, in some respect, I don't hate sin to that degree. I, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I can deal with it. And we're not, we're not, the only dealing we are supposed to deal with sin is, A, not do it, obedience, and when we fail to do it, go come in repentance and forgiveness, ask, ask for, for asking God for forgiveness. So, um, yeah, that's a good good perspective. Yeah, right. if if you hate if you hate sin, it's one side of the equation, and often in Scripture, it's twofold, right? So to hate sin is not enough. You you put off sin, but you put on Christ. You put on the mind of Christ. So to love God is to hate sin. So if we love God, we are hating sin, and we love God because God loved us first, and so that's that's the model. So on one hand, when the focus is on hating sin and we focus on hating sin, what can get lost in there is the love of God. You can potentially hate sin without loving God, but you can't love God without hating sin. 
Good. All right, one more, and then uh, we'll move to our last section. Take your time. I don't want to rush you, Stephen. <laughs> uh, so from my experience with hating sin, I think another aspect is uh, we may have to let go of things in our life that things mm. may be certain associations, activities, or even aspirations that in our heart are things that lead us away from God, temptations, or just our weakness in our flesh. That yeah, we need to, and those, uh, that's, that is difficult when we've 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 wanted it for so long and hadn't attained it and now you realize attaining it is not what god wants and you've got to stop short of it i i I was so close and also no let me read you real quick as you were saying that uh, proverbs 8 13 the fear of the lord or the fear of yahweh is hatred of evil pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech i hate we can see some of what he hates righteously okay Let's continue on. Uh, in uh, it is important to understand that God does not change. Where are we at? I'll just read. Okay, perfect. Look at that. You and I literally have no constants in our lives. We and everything around us are in a constant state of change. Nothing stays the same. For us, change is unchanging. It is a significant part of our daily experience. Much of the unpredictability of our lives and the anxiety that results comes from the fact that we live in a world of constant change. Our bodies are in a constant state of change. Our emotions swing wildly and change constantly. The physical things around us are changing all the time. Things age, wear out, and break. The fact that people change all the time often makes our relationships confusing and difficult. And he's going to talk about Luella, his wife here. As parents, Luella and I dealt with a frustration that all parents have to deal with. Just about when we felt comfortable parenting our children through a particular stage of development, they would move on to another (laughs) stage. The churches we attend change, though perhaps not theologically, but leaders change, locations change, and the congregation is always changing. The government and economy exist in a constant state of change. The values of a culture change, and with it, personal lifestyles, public morals, education, and entertainment. The technologies around us are changing so rapidly, it is nearly impossible to keep up. And as we go through the stages of life, our daily opportunities, responsibilities, and temptations morph and change. I can really relate to, uh, you know, as a parent in a season of life with your children, I just got them figured out. I got this running smoothly, and we're going to move into they can't crawl to every. Now they can get into everything. Right. I mean, and then all of a sudden they're going to move into teenagers. And you're like, oh, I just barely got this thing figured out, and you're going to put this on me? Okay, let's keep going. Because we are constantly changing and everything around us is changing too, we all seek for some rock of constancy or stability in life. We all would love to hook ourselves to something that we could be sure would stay the same no matter what. Human beings are in a constant search for what is changeless, whether they know it or not. Fascinating philosophical statement, a worldview, a Christian worldview of our hearts. Let's keep going. Because unchanging change is the reality in which all of us live, it is hard for us to grasp that God never changes and to understand the glorious implications of this truth. Let me start this way. God is not like us. He has no past, present, or future. 
He exists in an eternal now. He is always what he is. He is what he has always been and will be for what he forever has been. So God never becomes something, never needs anything, and never learns anything. God has no hopes and dreams, hmm. disappointments and regrets. He has no what-ifs or if-onlys. His character and purposes are without change. He will never grow into something different than he once was. God will only ever be what he eternally is. All right, he's going to start talking in the next four or five paragraphs on the, the consequence of the truth that God never changed. And I'm here to tell you, if you were kind of listening so far, time to turn it up a notch. I mean, this is where you will walk away feeling refreshed in the, the truth that God is unchanging as it relates to us as changing sinful creatures. So go ahead. Why is this important? <clears throat> it's important because the reliability of everything we believe rests on the fact that our God does not change. There is no better to the point summary than Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Hmm. You see, like the children of Jacob, if our relationship with God and our continued inclusion in his great redemptive plan rested on whether or not we were unchangingly faithful, we would be doomed. Our fickle hearts don't alter his loving purpose. Our unchanging Lord is hard to grasp because in our experience, change is a normal expected part of life. But the truth of God's unchangeability is the glorious glory for all who have put their trust in him. The fact that he has said to you, I am the Lord, do not change, is the reason you can get up in the morning and once again look for opportunities to be his tool of grace in the life of your children, even though that work is demanding and often discouraging. It is why you can be patient and forgiving toward your spouse, even though there are moments when you're tempted to give up and walk away. This is what gives you the courage to stand for Christ at your university, even in moments when you're misunderstood or mocked. It is why you dig into his word, even on the mornings when you're tired and are facing a full schedule. I, the Lord, do not change, is what propels you to love that neighbor who seems to be looking for a fight. It is what causes you to run to God and not away from him, him when faced with sex or money temptations. And it is what gives you a reason to come to him in humble confession when you have wandered away from his will. I, the Lord, do not change, is the rock upon which every comfort and every call of your life as a Christian rests. Hmm. All right, you're going to turn it up another notch here in this next paragraph. Let me give you one final example of how mind-blowing and unshakably encouraging this aspect of biblical doctrine of God is. Gerhardus Voss vividly pictures the imagination expanding wonder of this truth, commenting on God's words in Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love, Voss wrote. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. If God loves you eternally, there was never a time when that love began, so there will never, never be a time when that love ends. It is an eternal, everlasting love. There, will, there was never a moment in time when God didn't love us. He has loved us eternally. He has forever loved us and will forever love us. All right. I, I, I got to hold on to that one for just a second. That means 
that your performance cannot deny his eternal love towards you. It is not performance or time-based. He has eternally loved you. Therefore, he always loves you. He's loving you through you, the, you, the child. He, um, he's going to do a work. At, for me, it was age 23. Loving me through all of the, the garbage of workspace theology until I get to 23. And he, that, that year, he ch- chooses to open up and transform my heart. So now I hear the gospel and understand it. And, and then all of my sanctification and the falling on my face when I fall into temptation and I feel like, why? I, I can't do this. Why would I continue on this? I'm so worthless, and you're so perfect. And he's, it's over and over again, us understanding it's not based on us. It's based on who he is, his eternal love for us. Then we, that, it just gives us the, when we're so down on us because we've fallen again, it allows us to get back up because it's not based on us. His love is eternal. I, I just read this over and over again. I found myself getting on my knees, metaphorically, in the middle of this, uh, of studying this and going, thank you. I need this reminder when I want to start condemning myself, self-condemnation, which is a form of pride, because I blew it again. Thank you for this. What a great reminder. I, I, can, I can go to you and know that you didn't, you never, when I say, Please forgive me again. You, you never roll your eyes. You're there to love me, waiting for me to, to, to turn and repent. This is, this is huge. You've got to know these truths. Okay, let's continue on. Whether on a given day you believe it or it feels like it, you are eternally loved by God. When you are plagued by doubt, you are eternally loved by God. When his promises seem absent and he seems distant, you are eternally loved by God. When his word seems dry and you find it hard to apply to your life, you are eternally loved by God. When you feel alone and misunderstood, you are eternally loved by God. On your best day and during your worst, darkest moment, you are eternally loved by God. Mm. When pride crushes gratitude, you are eternally loved by God. When you follow him with a heart filled with the courage of faith, you are eternally loved by God. Your love is never your foundation. His eternal love is. Live in this hope. In light of this truth, explain why the expression, I don't feel loved by God, should never have control over you again. Anybody want to take that on? That question? That's your deep theological question. That's actually my question. That would be something I would pose in a counseling session to see if they got what I just shared. If you can't answer that, you didn't get what he just shared. And I know we're up on time. I just want to challenge you. There's an answer to that, and the answer is God. You need to dig in because that means you need to understand God's love. Rob Roy, you want to finish us off there with the final uh, paragraph? Sure. Um, God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? And he proved it on the cross. So we not only have his word on it, which is enough, he's also demonstrated it in, in, in time um, through his son. And I think the difficulty is... 
when we're anxious or we worry or we look at life circumstances, we want more proof than what's already provided as if the cross wasn't enough. Mm. Last paragraph. I feel a bit frustrated at the limits of a single chapter to capture the implications of the glorious glory of the existence and nature of God. I've shared with you a short list of some of the implications of the ultimate fact of facts of the human existence, the existence of God. But it would take volumes to exhaust what it means to believe in God. There is nothing you could ever exercise your mind to consider that would even come close to the importance of giving your mental capacities to meditate on the doctrine of God. This doctrine is the ultimate interpreter of everything that is. It is the only valid way of understanding your identity. It provides the only reliable way of answering questions of meaning and purpose. It is the only thing that can give you moral surety. And this doctrine is the only way to live with unbroken joy and peace of heart. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. They are deep truths. We pray that uh, you will use what you have given us today to allow our minds to meditate on them, to have follow-up conversations with the people we love, or just maybe times of, of, of time in prayer with you and, and sharing with you what we've learned and appreciate what you have taught us, that we would apply them, that you would, you would do the work when we are feeling down and we're forgetful of these truths to remind us of them that we might have a right understanding of our situation in light of who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.